Good morning. It's good to see everyone gathered together on this glorious January day that's much different than the rest of our country, uh, largely, right? Uh, Snowstorms and sub-freezing temperatures uh, is what the rest of the country is dealing with, and we're enjoying this beautiful weather here. Well, it is good to come together and to be in God's house and to worship Him as well. And and just to let you know, I, I talk, was talking to a brother earlier, and, and he didn't know where our next book of the Bible was coming from. Uh, maybe he didn't hear, but just to let you know, and then to let you know that we do preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. And the next book that we'll be digging into, beginning in a couple of weeks, is the book of 1 John. So you can begin by reading and meditating on that. We'll be in it roughly February to June. That may seem like a long time, but it's not once you get into it. And uh, I'm looking forward to digging into that and applying that to our congregation. But as we've ended the life of Elijah and we're sort of in between, we've had a, a few topical messages looking in the Psalms. And the Psalms are very comforting for the children of God. First of all, the Psalms help set our perspective right, that God is altogether holy and always does what is right. Also, the Psalms meet us in our our despair, and our joy, and, and so forth. And so the Psalms minister into a range of emotions that we might have. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. The title of the message is, A Perplexed Perception of the Wicked. A Perplexed Perception of the Wicked. Most of you are familiar with this psalm. You know the flow, uh, but we're going to go ahead and go through that. Many Christians are unjustly treated in our day. We see and pray for often the persecuted church. And that's just something that is real today. Um, In the Middle East and in many other areas, um, the church is being persecuted. I have a friend right now that's in Mosul filming for this very thing, for a documentary that's going to be coming out. Um, Christians are being persecuted ISIS is destroying churches or anything that is, quote, religious or represents God and the name of Allah. The psalmist in our text was upset over the wicked prospering, the the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And we too, our blood can boil as you think about certain industries, the drug cartels, They have it all. They've got the big houses, the cars, and all of that. By putting drugs across the border, hooking young people and and young adults and older adults who are pursuing pleasure as their number one goal. Many ways destroying our country. The Hollywood movie industry. You see movie after movie putting forth perversion and stuff that you would not want your children to watch. The pornographic industry, which, by the way, Southern California is the worldwide capital for that. You know, our blood boils when we realize the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars being made from such a foul industry. And of course, now it's come to more greater light, as it were, even in the regular media, but human trafficking, terrible thing, forced slavery, and often Uh, forced to perform sex acts. And of course, this includes minors and our blood boils. The the wicked prosper out there. God, are you asleep? We, We can be, as it were, like the psalmist. Lord, are you on your throne? Why is all of this going on? Job knew this tension that the psalmist knows in Psalm 73. He says in Job 42, at the end of the conclusion of everything, 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job comes to the conclusion that, and the reality is, as Isaiah says in chapter 58 or so, your thoughts are not my thoughts. (laughs) You know, God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways. And my thoughts, that's a paraphrase. Our culture continues to drift into carnal, ungodly, and dare I say it, insanity, because it is insanity. Celebrities seem to have it all. They've got the phony happiness, the plastic smiles, you know, and they seem to have it all. But in an instant, it's taken. Carrie Fisher, the Star Wars star of which I, didn't, I knew very little about not being a Star Wars buff, but apparently the whole world did. It was continually flashed before us for weeks and weeks and weeks when she died, I believe at age 60. One day later, her mother, Debbie Reynolds, passes away and dies as well. Our culture is given to a narcissistic, self-absorbed perversion, and it is a perversion. And in our day, of course, if you don't like anybody, or you don't like the opposite sex, let's say, but you want to have a companion, you can marry the same sex. That's applauded even in many churches and and in our culture today. Also, well, let's say you don't like humans. Well, you can marry your dog in many places of the world. And then the cutting-edge thing, of course, is that Well, I don't like other humans or pets, so I manufacture a robot with a 3D printer. That's the latest. And I have a right to marry my robot. This is true. This is last month. And now, drum roll, you can now marry yourself. Did you know that? There's a website out there, I Marry Me. And it's a a do-it-yourself marriage kit that singles who want to commit to themselves. Isn't that something wonderful? Yes, you too, for $50, can get a sterling silver ring, instruction, vows, 24 affirmation cards to remind you of the vows of which you have made. Well, I share all that just to share the insanity of our culture. And we too can fall into the temptation or the sin even that the psalmist fell into. Lord, are you on your throne? And of course we know it's when he comes into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Their present apparent prosperity is but for a moment. Well, let's read the psalm. We're going to read its entirety, all 28 verses. If you want to follow along, I'm reading in the New American Standard. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There is no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace." The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high, and they've set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. 
They are increased in their wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, and I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, and behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I became senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you take hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterwards receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the brute honesty of the psalmist before us. We thank you for Asaph and how he has penned this for us that we can read and benefit from it thousands of years later. Lord, we pray that you would remove distractions. We pray, Lord, that your word would fly freely in this place. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his saving work would be magnified. We pray that you would exalt yourself in our midst and that you would humble the pride of man. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a couple of words about um, the psalm. Psalm 73, it begins the third book of Psalms. um, And so it's the first one, and then there's 11 in a row from Asaph. Asaph had only penned one other one, Psalm 50. And so it's attributed to Asaph. The subscript says, a psalm of Asaph. Well, you say, who is Asaph? Well, he was of the tribe of Levi, whom David put in charge of the worship music that was to be performed in the tent of meeting, the temple not yet being built. Second Chronicles 29 says, And Hezekiah, and this is years later, And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, and they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worship. So as it were, he was a worship leader before the people of God. And what happens here before us is is Asaph, as a worship leader, as one who's following God, saw the prosperity of the wicked. And and James Montgomery Boyce uh, communicates it like this. There's a paradigm shift, as it were, in his understanding. He's looking at the wicked and the apparent prosperity until he comes into the sanctuary of God. And there's a radical paradigm shift One of the things I'm encouraged about this psalm is is the honesty, as I said, that it's here. He tells it like it is. He's not mincing words. He's not candy-coating things. He sees the ungodly flourishing in their apparent prosperity. In fact, they even blaspheme the God of Israel. 
He begins to think that perhaps God is not on his throne until God changes his perspective. It's been often said, Psalm 73 and Psalm 37 are counterparts, and, and I, I think there's, very, there's parallels for sure. Same numbers, just switched. Psalm 37 verse 1 begins with, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. And isn't that how this psalm begins as well? Why do the wicked prosper and the godly have such a hard time? That's the question that's raised in in Psalm 37. And the answer there is to wait and trust Jehovah, that he is in control. In fact, today marks the 50th anniversary of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the others, the five of them that were slaughtered in Ecuador. They go there to take the gospel to an unreached people, and the Indians speared them to death, and they died. Was that all for naught? No, the gospel is flourishing there today. That was 50 years ago, January 8th, 60 years ago, 1956. There goes my math. 60 years ago. And of course, Jim Elliott, we know the, the phrase, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The godly suffer in this life. Trials are part and parcel of the Christian life, and if you don't know that yet, you will soon enough, because it is the norm. We must be resolved to give God praise, even in the midst of the storm. A contemporary Christian band, Casting Crowns, uh, wrote a great song some years ago, I will praise you, in the storm, for you, for you are who you are, no matter where I am, every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand, you never left my side, though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. We need to have that same resolve. So today we're considering this psalm, the entire psalm, uh, fasten your seatbelts, <laughs> are you going to get through it in a reasonable time, don't worry, uh, under three P's. The first is the disoriented perception, that's verses 1 to 12, and then the the divine perspective, and then ultimately the ultimate pleasure, and so that's the last ones. First of all, the disoriented perception. You might say, well, wait a minute, he's not disoriented. Look at verse 1, surely God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. Well, the psalmist begins with what could be his concluding verse, right? He wants to set the record straight, lest you go down the wrong road. This is his conclusion of the matter, and he puts it right at the very beginning. But we see here the praise of God in this verse, and also the peril of the ungodly, verses 1 to 3. Surely God is good to Israel, but verse 2 and 3, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps, they almost slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the wicked. I was jealous of what they had. I I found my heart desiring evil towards them that I might gain what they have. I was envious of them. We can fall into this mindset when we see others getting by on easy street and we're working so hard, the long hours to make ends meet. We can fall into a sense of envy as well. He's ruthfully honest about his, his, his sinful tendencies. Charles Spurgeon says this, Here begins the narrative of the great soul battle, a spiritual marathon, and hard and well-fought field, and all the half-defeated become, in the end, wholly victorious. 
But as for me, he contrasts himself with his God who is ever good. He owns his person, want of good, and then also compares himself with a clean heart and goes on to confess his defilement. The Lord is good to the saints, but as for me, am I one of them? Can I expect to share your grace? Yes, I do share it, but I have acted the unworthy part, very unlike one who is truly pure in heart. My feet were slippery. He's weakened for all practical action, the great danger of sin, and, and, and so a shameful fall as his foot is about to slip. Isaiah 11, verse 3, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Well, we see verse 4 to 12, the portrait of the wicked, the portrait of the wicked, and it's a, it's a very vivid description, right? <coughs> Excuse me, look, look at the text here. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. Very vivid description that the psalmist perceives as if he were looking through a magnifying glass at the wicked. And everything that they apparently have is magnified before his eyes and ten times bigger than what it really is with spiritual eyes. He began to think that that was the desirable thing versus his royalty of being a child of God. Why do the wicked die with such peace? Well, it's because the devil already has their fate sealed. They don't need a a, a fretful death. Matthew Henry says, We cannot judge of men's state on the other side of death, either by the manner of how they die or the frame of their spirits when they die. Men may die like lambs, and yet their place is with the goats. Little pain on this earth. Their body's fat. They have it all. They have the luxurious food. They're well-fed. Charles Spurgeon says, in cases of obesity, the eyes usually appear to be enclosed in fat, and sometimes they protrude. In either case, the countenance is changed and loses its human form and is assimilated to that of fatted swine. I think that's a good way of putting it. Their body is fat. They're given to pleasure and and, and fulfillment and all of that. They do not have trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. It it appears that everything's going their way. You know, there's no hiccups. There's no difficulties. There's no flat tires. There's no, the car won't start. There's not, you know, all these things that that we can tend to be uh, afflicted with. These little a petty annoyances, as it were. And furthermore, look at verses 6 to 8. They oppress the righteous. They abuse their power. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, and they speak from on high. James actually speaks of this in James 5, verse 4. Look, the pay, speaking to the rich, look, the pay that you have held back from the workers who have mowed your field cries out against you, and cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. What a vivid description of the, the, the wicked rich and the oppression of the righteous poor. Very clearly set forth. 
Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They may have the best of jewelry, not the 10 carat, the 24 carat, you know, the pure, not the skinny little gold chain, but the fat gold chain, as it were. All of the jewels and all of this kind of thing. They have all of that, but they don't even need that because their pride goes before them. It's like a necklace. Spurgeon is pithy when he says, they speak lofty, their high heads like tall chimneys, vomit black smoke. Well, application, what about for us, brethren? What about when you have labored so hard in the workplace for four, five, six years and haven't had a promotion? And the new guy that's been here less than a year has already been promoted beyond you. You can begin to envy Maybe you feel like the psalmist today, my dear friend, and you, you look around and you see the wicked, that are, they're healthy, and yet you have one bodily affliction after the next, after the next. You get one taken care of and the next one comes. You, you, you look at them and they're, they're financially successful with what appears to be little effort, and you're struggling to get by. You, you look at them and they're gaining, they're popular and they're gaining all the friends. There's the ones in college that have all the friends that are in the workplace. They're, they're popular. People flock to them while you're losing friends over the gospel. Some of you young people, you look at your peers. You're seeking to glorify God and the way that your mother and father has trained you and you're in high school or, or college or even junior high and you look at the peers and They're so proud. They're so puffed up. They're so arrogant. And you're seeking to walk humbly before your God. They appear to be so happy, but yet so many commit suicide and are in despair. There's something that comes crashing down. Oh, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord at such times. When our heart begins to wonder, really what we're saying is, God, are you really on the throne Do you see what I'm going through? Are you really there? Do you care? Am I one of your children? We can even even fall into depression as we are are weighed down by these things. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his great book on depression says this, the main trouble in the whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, we allow ourselves to talk to ourselves instead of we talking to ourselves, This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? What does he mean? Does that sound like double talk or something? No. What he means is reminding yourself with the truth of the Word of God, the promises that are here. The the character of God, that he never leaves us or forsakes us. Our high priest, the one who has bled and died for us, who sits in heaven and interceding for us daily, each and every day, even when it seems like God is far. Speaking to ourselves, reminding ourselves of these things. And that's why being amongst the people of God in the corporate worship is is Vital because it's like a reset. It's like earlier this morning, I just shut off my phone and restarted again because something wouldn't work. It's a reset, right? We need a mental reset with the things of God and spiritual things. But also notice their pollution. Verses 8 and 9, they mock, wickedly speak. They speak from on high. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades. Notice that fourfold repetition 
Part of their corrupt character is their foul mouth. And isn't that true? You've got media coming from every source. Television commercials, innocent enough, right? Well, and look at the programs and look at what you hear in earshot. They have a polluted mouth. They speak wickedly. They continually curse and tell filthy stories. They have a proud mouth. They speak as, as one that's on high and proud. They have a profane mouth. They speak against the very God of heaven. And then a perpetually mocking mouth. Their tongue walks about through the earth. If you notice that, at the end of verse 9, their tongue parades through the earth, walks around the earth. In other words, what they're saying and the lies of the devil is being paraded everywhere. It's being pumped through media, social media, regular media, whatever media. It's being pumped through to us. It parades throughout the earth. The righteous man must be, as it were, one that plugs his ears, according to that, and fills his mind and his heart with truth so that he does not run askew. No doubt Asaph begins to think, is God on the throne? Is he asleep? This profaning of God and even his people. These folks want to think that God does not see their wicked deeds, and so they claim that God does not know. You see that in verse 11, and they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge of the Most High? What arrogance. What arrogance. Maybe that's you today. Maybe your lifestyle is one in which you tell yourself that, does God really see? Can he really see through these doors? Can he really see through this roof? Does he really see me every moment of every day with what I'm choosing to do and use my time on, seeking pleasure in a wicked world? Well, the psalmist was disoriented. His perception was askew. Secondly, we see in verses 13 to 20 the divine perspective. First of all, in verse 13 and 14, we see that enlightenment comes in our perspectives. They're corrected by the word of God. It appears God is not good to his children. He's, the doubt is intensified in the first step to having your eyes opened is not mental but moral. It's a turning away from self-interest and self-pity and casting your eyes upon God, looking at how he has been loyal and how he's been so faithful to you. Psalm 39, verse 2, I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. But notice in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. What is the sanctuary of God? Is that some place where there's lots of gold and stained glass and you know, and all the priests and wearing collars and all of that. What, what is the sanctuary of God? It's the place where the people of God worship the one true God. That's the sanctuary of God. It would have been the tabernacle, of course, for the psalmist. But mark it well. It is the place where the prayers of God's, God's people ascend like incense that is well-pleasing to God, where the word of God is opened up and expounded, where, where the, the praise of God exalts more than the praise of man, is which would, was what we hear out there. The psalmist, perhaps Saul, the priest, offering sacrifices in this context, the, the voices of God's people lifted up in song for us today. All I have is Christ. Wonderful confession and profession 
that we need to remind ourselves of. Perhaps the psalmist was there and he saw the sacrifices and he knew that that pointed to an atoning of sin, that the, the, the enmity would be pulled out of the way, looking forward to the promise. Maybe he's hearing of God's faithfulness to Noah in his family or to Abraham or the Exodus journeys or whatever. And as we hear and we hear, we're reminded of God's faithfulness through covenant to his people. But for the psalmist, everything was blurry, everything was confused, and now it begins to come into focus. It's like binoculars you haven't used for a while. You pick them up, and they're all, it's like, you know, see better without the magnification. But you put it in focus, and then you can see. Maybe the psalmist, as it were, uh, you know, as you think about this, and the psalmist falling into this was one that was out of fellowship to apply it to our modern day context, as it were, maybe uh, hadn't been in church for some time. Maybe those lies, they haven't had the reset, if I can use that, I guess, the spiritual, mental reset for some time, and weeks and weeks go by. Maybe they've left off the means of grace that God has provided for us coming together around the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ has done for us, hearing the word expounded, encouraging one another through the fellowship of the saints. Maybe the psalmists have left off on reading the scrolls and the psalms and the old covenant, and for you, reading your Bible becomes more of a burden than a delight. And then you start skipping church half the time, and you're not here, and you wonder why your perception is askew. Perhaps the psalmist was relying on the internet news of the day, as it were, for us to rely only on what you see over the internet, maybe watching E.T., the celebrity show, if that's still on Entertainment Tonight or something like that. It's just celebrity after celebrity and all their prosperity and their big smiles and all of that. Your perspective can get messed up. But the psalmist came into the sanctuary of God He was given eternal eyes that now he can see. And what does it say? Then, then I perceived their what? Their end. Then I perceived their end. What a frightening thing. That is key. He's caught up in the present lifestyle of the wicked. And now he realizes their eternal end, where they will spend eternity He perceives that maybe they'll live 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90 years of prosperity in this world. But if the end is dying and going to everlasting torment, what good is it for a moment to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin? What folly! Psalm 37, 37, Mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have posterity will raise a godly seed. Verses 18 to 20, the prospects of the wicked. This is their true destiny. And the psalmist goes and amplifies on it. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. That's the wicked. That's where they're going. Proverbs 5, 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps take hold of Sheol. There's a danger. Surely God sets them in slippery places. God removes the traction of their shoes, as it were, and they're barefoot on ice trying to walk through this world, slipping 
and ultimately will fall into perdition. Deuteronomy 32, 35, I believe this is the text of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says this, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. They don't see it coming. How does Christ put it? It's like a thief in the night. You lay your head on your pillow And suddenly, it's over. This life is done. And that's exactly what the psalmist says, verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment. In an instant, they're destroyed. Prosperity of the wicked only puts them in dangerous places. Some who have prospered in this world with riches and politics and business and popularity and all of that have been put in very dangerous situations. God is the one that destroys them in a moment. And look at the end of verse 19, and they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. The word communicates the idea of dismay, despair, destruction. They're swept away in an instant. Job says in Job 20 verse 5, The exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Headlong is their fall, without warning, with no escape whatsoever, with no hope of reconciliation to God, the one that they will stand before Their golden chains and their nice apparel and their big houses and their cars mean nothing because death has come suddenly. Look at verse 20. I mean, it's just this is just so vivid. I I hope that I'm connecting with you. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. It's like a dream. Their perceived happiness is like a short dream, and suddenly they're awake. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, when people are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Well, we've seen the disoriented perception, the divine perspective in the sanctuary of God, and lastly, the ultimate pleasure. And we see that in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is true satisfaction. You may have nothing but the clothes on your back. You may live in a shack. You may have a couple of handfuls of rice per day, but your portion is that you have your God. And this life is but a vapor. And you know you will be with him in paradise. Well, first of all, verse 21 to 24, there's this sense in which the psalmist gives a confession and he acknowledges his sin. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. (coughs) Excuse me. So first of all, he was grieved and embittered. He confesses he was given to bitterness. Secondly, he confesses, I was foolish. I had the wrong perspective, and it made me act ignorantly. 
Thirdly, he confesses, I was like a beast envying the wicked because of their prosperity. Made me like a beast in this life. Now he sees with new eyes and he makes a full confession of his folly. A beautiful picture of his confession here. 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you and and you take hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you guide me. He leads us as we submit to him. He's given a a, a divine uh, perspective and divine protection. God is near and powerful to those who walk in his will. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. Brothers and sisters, God is there to guide you today, tomorrow, and on into the future in eternity. Proverbs 3, 5, 5, and 6, most of you have this memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. One commentator said the psalmist's talk had changed from self-pity to praise. No longer focusing on self, he affirms that he belongs to God and he belongs amongst the people of God. Well, finding satisfaction in God alone is key. Coming into the sanctuary of God, finding your ultimate satisfaction with him is key. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. On one level, the language is a simple way of saying, anywhere and at all, he is with me. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul says. Asaph turns away from the glitter which fascinated him to the true gold of the wealth of the people of God, which cannot be seen with naked eyes. We walk by faith, not by sight. In verse 26, he says, he speaks of the strength, God's strength and his portion forever. Asaph ends the psalm where he begins. He, he recounts one more time, verse 27, and behold, those who are far from you will perish and be destroyed. But, verse 28, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, Psalm 46, verse 1. Think of that, that I may tell of all of your works. What a contrast to the farness of the wicked and their apparent prosperity to the very nearness of God. A beautiful thing. Well, let's draw um, some concluding uh, applications. We see, uh, first of all, the... the, um, wrong perception, and then finally the divine perspective and and the ultimate pleasure is finding your satisfaction in him. Well, outward temporal prosperity can be dangerous. Remember Proverbs 30, uh, I think it's verse 8 and 9, give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I am poor and I steal to feed myself, or I'm rich and I what? Forget you. Prosperity can be dangerous. It's not that it is dangerous. It can be. If you're wrapped up in that and you forget your God. Look, discipleship has its demands. Mark 8, 
He summoned the crowd of his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself. It goes on to say, what will the profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Don't be surprised when things don't seem right in the here and now. This world is passing away. You don't, don't judge what's real by looking at the world and, and the worldlings that fill it. Asaph, learn that this life is not always fair, and it's not. The righteous suffer. Many of you have suffered in various ways. Many of our brethren now are suffering around the world. And our, when our perspective runs askew, we can either complain against God or submit ourselves and worship Him. The best comfort in this life is not lots of money and prosperity and possessions, but to know that God is near in time of trouble. He's near the brokenhearted. He delivers those who are oppressed. The Puritan John Flavel says, We should call our hearts to account every evening and say, Oh, my heart, where have you been today? Where have your thoughts been wandering? Oh, naughty heart, oh, vain heart, could you not abide by the fountain of delights? Is there better pleasure with the creature than with your Redeemer God? And of course, we know that no one has been more unjustly treated than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is sinless. The one who never hurt anyone was the most unjustly treated in the world. Pilate said to Christ, John 19.10, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Of course, you know, Jews and the, the kangaroo courts sent him to the cross. He's crucified with thieves on either side of him common thieves. One of those thieves believed. He didn't have time to live a life of good works. He didn't have time to go be baptized, light candles, make vows or anything. He just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was convicted of his sin before a holy God. Christ saved him. His righteous life, his atoning death on the cross where he takes all of my sins upon himself and endures the Father's just wrath against sin upon himself. And then his perfect life, his righteousness, is imputed to my account. That is good news. He makes us rich as his children, truly rich, not the temporal riches of the wicked. Second Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. And finally, he's the one that all will stand before in that day. The wicked, they think they get away. They die suddenly. In an instant, they're taken, and they will stand before Christ in that day. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. If you're outside of Christ, run, flee, Embrace him by faith as he set forth in the word of God, confessing that you're a sinner, confessing that you're bankrupt, you have nothing to offer but to beg for his mercy and ask him that he would save you for Christ's sake. In our New Testament reading, that 
startling passage in Luke. I read Emily and I at family worship. Everyone else was gone last night, uh, but we read this this passage and, and discussed it. And there's a phrase that jumped out to me that I, I know that I've read it before. I know it, but it just impacted me. And it's right before he tells the parable of the rich man that says, what shall I do? I'll tear down my barns, big, build bigger barns. Verse 15, and he said to them, be on your guard against every form of greed. And then this phrase, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. In other words, he's saying not even, but this is a true statement of all of us. Our life doesn't consist of the house we live in, the car we drive, the clothes we wear. It doesn't consist of any of that. And then at the end, you fool. This very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? We strive our entire lives to build our little mini kingdoms and to build our 401ks and all of that, and it's worth nothing when we leave this life. If you're outside of Christ, flee to him. If you're in Christ and you've had the wrong perspective, or maybe you're relying too much on the world, run to him, confessing your sin. He knows your heart better than you do. He will forgive you and give you strength. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you, Lord, for the example of the psalmist and his honesty, Lord. Help us to be honest one with another. Help us to be honest with you. Lord, glorify yourself in and through Grace Bible Church as we continue to grow in love one with another as you unite this family together. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to have an impact in this lost and dying world. We love you. We love our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.